Jesus started his public ministry, he went back to his hometown of Nazareth and he went to the synagogue as was his custom. And the scripture says that he took the role of Isaiah and he began to read. And after he read that, he rolled up the scroll, put it back in its place, and he sat down and began to talk. In Matthew chapter 5, before the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus called the disciples up to himself. He came on the mountain. He sat down and he began teaching them, blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to be more like Jesus every day. But that's not the reason I'm sitting down uh, today. Uh, this week, I sprained my sacroiliac joint, which I didn't know I even had one. Um, it's a joint that does not move, but mine did. And uh, so standing, it reminds me uh, that I, it, it moved and it shouldn't have. So it's a lot easier for me to sit. So if you'll be a little gracious, I'm going to just sit down, as did Jesus when he taught. And uh, we've even brought this screen down to Pastor Brian Elevation. So that'll be, uh, oh, yeah, I can barely walk. No sympathy. Pastor Brian's born short. Yeah, okay, well. So those of you in Skagit, we're glad to, good, glad to have you with us. And uh, Pastor Brian, too, glad you're, I hope you're still with us. Uh, good to have you. Those of you in Boca Raton, the Trinity Church of God, good to have you with us. I understand there might be some people from, Cornwall, Cornwall, from here in Bellingham there this week. And if so, uh, give them our love. And those of you watching online, uh, thank you uh, for being here with us. Uh, it is so good uh, to be here. You know, last week, Kip did such a phenomenal job as we finished out the Calm and the Chaos series. And the thing that I so loved about his message, and he said it before, but it's such a great little phrase, that whole idea of not what if, but even if. Man, if we can just hold on to that, that will serve us well uh, for the rest of our lives. Last weekend, um, I was uh, with Pastor Mike Ford, our Go and Be pastor, as well as uh, Bill Mihalik, one of our elders, and Rich Bosman, one of our former uh, elders. And we were in Costa Rica visiting uh, Jason and Abby Torgerson, who are from our church. They're, they're missionaries in Costa Rica now. And went around and visiting, uh, meeting some pastors, visiting some churches, and trying to discern, really, what would God have for Cornwall to be partnering with uh, these uh, works of God in Costa Rica throughout the week. And it's great to be able to meet some of these pastors, to go to these different churches, to go to some of the different services. And uh, we're excited about some of the doors that God's opening up for us uh, as, a, as a body to go and be uh, with what's happening in Costa Rica. On Saturday night uh, last week, we were in a church out in the country, and so they divided us up and put us in homes of people from the church, and Pastor Mike and I went to stay uh, in the home of the pastor, Pastor Noily, and there was a little bit of a, an issue because up to that point, Jason and Abby were always with us. Abby is fluent in Spanish. Jason is getting there, but there was always an interpreter, and so we went to these people's house on a Saturday night, and they didn't speak English, and I, my Spanish allows me to order at Taco Bell with confidence. That's about the extent of my Spanish. And Mike Forge is even less, but he had a phone that, that translates words. And so it was early enough in the evening, we couldn't just go and go to bed. That would be rude. It's like eight in the evening. So we've got to kill about an hour or two before it's, you know, decent time to go to bed. And so we're trying to talk. They're trying to talk. We're trying to talk. Very much a language barrier. So we use our, uh, our phones to show pictures of our family, explain that, and learn words for things like brother and stuff like that. And then they asked about Cornwall, and we didn't have a lot of pictures of Cornwall, so we tried to explain that. Then uh, Pastor Noyley asked me about Costa Rica, what I thought of Costa Rica, and this is where my Spanish really kicked in. I said, oh, bonita. You know, it's beautiful. And I was pretty pumped that I spoke uh, Spanish that way. 
And then she kept talking then, and I didn't understand anything she was saying, but there was a word that popped out that I did understand. She said something about some, 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 playa. Well, I know that playa means beach. I said, oh, playa. And I said, I, um, yo no sé. I don't know if we're going to the beach. I didn't know. And I said, but what I do know, and this is where the charades kicked in, is that uh, we're going to go see crocodiles. And, uh, and so th- that was on our plan. And, uh, and this is where my Taco Bell training really came in handy. Because some of you remember Taco Bell used to have this commercial, and the, the tagline at the end was, Yo quiero Taco Bell. I think it was with the little chihuahua, which means I want Taco Bell. So I, like, I knew that line. So I thought I can use that line. I said, uh, Yo quiero, I want, and then I ran out of Spanish. So I had to go into charades. So Yo quiero, uh, I want to see, and, I, and what I really wanted to see was a sloth. I've never seen a sloth. And I didn't know how to say sloth. And so I just did the... the thinking that was very clear. And, and she thought it was, a, I was saying monkey, so she said, mono, mono, and then, and then Mike's over here typing up, he types in sloth, and it comes up and she shows him. Hilarious, a lot of fun. We, we made it through the night, finally killed enough time with charades and, and bad Spanglish that we finally got to go to bed. But a couple days later, we did go to the um, Manuel Antonio uh, National Park, and, uh, and we were able to see sloths. In fact, I, one of the sloths here uh, that I took a picture of, fascinating creatures. If you've ever, never done any research on sloth, there's a three-toed sloth and there's a two-toed sloth. And we saw about five of the three-toed sloths, which if you're doing math is 15 toes, but only on one, one hand. And, and the, our, our little guide said, it's very rare to see a two-toed sloth because they're a nocturnal creature. But fortunately, we did actually get to see one. And his description, this Costa Rican guy, he says, they look like a, a little blonde Chewbacca. So, there he was, this little Chewbacca. As we were going down the trail, we came across this little guy. And I was fascinated by how brilliantly green this snake was. And knowing that I was going to do this series, I got down with my iPhone to get this picture and, and to take it because I knew that we were going to go into this series called Snakes, Gardens, and Crosses. And I wanted a picture of a snake for that. And so we had that. Now, when you hear the, the title Snakes, Gardens, and Crosses, I know that your mind goes directly to Jesus because that's what we talk about at church. And this series really is all about Jesus. But we start with this whole thing of snakes. And snakes are found, and they're pretty prolific throughout the pages of Scripture. From the opening pages, in Genesis chapter 3, in the garden, it talks about the servant, serpent being more crafty than all of the creation. And it kind of implies that the serpent didn't start off on the ground, that maybe God invoked a little de-evolution on this creature because it was later in, in uh, chapter 3 with the curse that, that the serpent would now be relegated to being on the dust, on his belly through the dust. And so you have the serpent there in, in Genesis 3. In Exodus chapter 4, when God is telling Moses to go and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, he said, here's one of the signs you can give to him. He says, what's that in your hand? He says, it's my staff. And God said, throw it down. And he threw it down and it became a snake. It was like, whoa. And then God says, go ahead and pick it up. <laughs> and Moses is probably going, no. But he, but he did and it became a staff. He was like, that's pretty cool. Which in my mind, I'd make a note. Whenever I'm in my tent, leave it sitting upright because I don't want to go to bed with that thing tipped over. You never know what happened. Jesus talked about snakes. One time he talked about them in a very positive uh, manner. He said to his disciples, I want you to be as shrewd as serpents, but as gentle as doves. But he also used snakes for some of his most cutting, harsh comments to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 33, when he's given these seven woes to the Pharisees, he says to them, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how can you escape hell? 
there's no wonder that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus when, they were talking, when he's talking to them that way. There's an instance in Acts chapter 28 when the Apostle Paul is being transported to Rome for imprisonment and they have a shipwreck and everybody washes up on the beach of an island called Malta and they're all wet and they build a fire and Paul has all this brush and out of this brush comes this viper and it bites him on the hand and won't let go. So all the local people of the island said, he must be a murderer. He survived the shipwreck, but justice is being served. He is bitten by this snake. He will surely die. He's a murderer. And he shook the snake off, and his hand never swelled, and he never died. So all the local people changed their story and said, surely he must be a god. And so they changed all that. So you see these snakes all through. Now there's an event that happens in Numbers chapter 21 that involves snakes. And this is where we're going to land today. If you want to follow along, it'll be a bit before we get there. But Numbers 21, way at the front end of the Bible, fourth book of the Bible. Uh, in Numbers 21, there's an event that happens with snakes. And it's unique because later Jesus himself points back to that event. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul points back to that event. Now you think about this. The Bible is important. But when you have Moses recording an event, Jesus talking about it, and Paul recording it, you know, there's probably something for us in this. With all these three guys saying, here's this story. And what I want you to understand is that, that the Word of God, Scripture, is there for us to make us the men and women, to help us along this, this journey that we were created to be. Paul writes in Romans, and he says this, for everything that was written in the past, you know, and for them it was the laws, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the Old what we call the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is why you hear us over and over again encourage you, exhort you, invite you, try to inspire you to put God's word in your mind and in your hearts, to read God's word, to study God's word, to memorize God's word, to think about God's word, to apply it to your life. That's why we come together on the weekend to together lift up the name of Jesus and worship him and then to together look into his word to find encouragement, to give us hope, to help us along this journey. And Paul is saying to the church in Rome, I want the word of God to be a part of your life. These aren't just great stories. They change our life. They help, help us endure the hardships. They encourage us. They give us hope. There's a time when Paul writes a letter to one of the churches he planted, and he planted many. But this church was in Corinth, and Corinth was a city that was filled with degradation. It was a, a city of, of paganism, of hedonism, a, a city of, of great uh, licentiousness and, and promiscuity. And one of the problems is, that as people heard the good news of Jesus and joined the church, some of the lifestyle wasn't necessarily redeemed yet. And they were allowing the culture to seep into the church. So in the church, there was some immorality. There were some things from the world. And if you've read First and Second Corinthians, you see how Paul addresses these issues. This is not who we were designed to be. This is not who Jesus died to make us. That we leave that life of, of immorality. We leave that life of sexual impurity. We leave that life of, of debauchery. We leave all of that. And in the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, he's pointing back to Israel and he points out how they were filled with idolatry. And he says, that's not what we want to be. He points out how they were filled with sexual immorality. And that's not the life we were called to live. How they had this pagan revelry. And he says, that's not the life we have to live. And then in the midst of all that, he writes these words. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. This is the story that we're going to look at. He's pointing back to Numbers 21. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee. 
He probably had the whole Pentateuch memorized. He knew this story very well. And he goes on, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. I'm going to preach on this one the last week of August, so come back for that. Come back before then, but anyway, we'll get to that. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. What Paul is saying to this church in Corinth is, listen, if you make a mistake and don't learn anything from it and make the same mistake again and again and again, that's, a, that's being a fool. If you make a mistake and you learn from it and never do that again, that's a smart thing. But wisdom would say, learn from other people's mistakes so that you don't have to make that mistake. See what they've done, watch their lives, learn from them so you can learn the lessons that they paid the hard cash for with their, their, their bruises and the, and the consequences so you don't have to do that. That you can be wise in this. And so he's pointing back to Israel saying, let's learn a lesson from them. Now, what's interesting is you, as you look at this whole story, uh, you begin to understand that what he's talking about here, it's a story of, re of rebellion and of redemption. And it's a story of rebellion and redemption that you see all throughout Israel's history. But what Paul knew was this, that the story of rebellion and redemption was not just Israel's story, it was his story. And he also knew that it was the church in Corinth, that it was their story. And what we know, if we're honest with ourselves in this room, is that for you and I, this is our story. Our lives where there's rebellion and where there's sin, but when there is redemption that comes back and God draws us back in and brings us back. So with that, I want to kind of give you the backstory, the context for, for this story we're going to look at. We've got to go way back, like Genesis way back, that the Hebrew people had been in slavery for 400 years under Pharaoh in Egypt. And God heard their cry, and he raises up Moses uh, to go and, and have Pharaoh let his people go. And that's the whole thing with the staff and, and the, the snake thing. And he goes in. And because of God's miraculous power and because of some of the things that he does, Pharaoh lets them go. After 400 years, they have their freedom. They cross through the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness. God provides for them. God protects them. God guides them. God directs them. All the way through, you see this. But you see something else. That there's this propensity for them to wander off. To go away from the, the, the teachings of God, the ways of God. They wander off. And this is where we see God always brings them back. He always redeems them. He always steers them back to recalibrate, to get back on the right track. And again, this is our story. Maybe you remember the song that we've sung at times around here. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love, that I wander sometimes too, and God lovingly restores me. You know, there's a, there's a line from a poem in, um, in the uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the, the trilogy, the, uh, I'm blanking here, Lord of the Rings. There's a, there's a line that has become really uh, quite popular. I've seen it on t-shirts, I've seen it on bumper stickers, I've seen it on REI, and the line is simply this, not all who wander are lost. The poem is fascinating in the story. But that line, not all who wander are lost. Now listen, guys, if you never want to stop and ask for directions, just pull that one out. Not all who wander are lost. Just taking the scenic route. We'll get there eventually. Not all who wander are lost. As Israel would wander off, they were lost, but they were not a lost cause. 
They had wandered off like sheep. They had gone astray. They were lost, but they were not a lost cause because they had a loving Heavenly Father who wanted to restore them, who wanted to redeem them, who wanted to bring them back, and He would always direct them, gently direct them back uh, to His side. But there were times, there were times when He'd say, okay, enough. That, that's it. I'm done. Like He's, he's filled with, with long-suffering and, and patience and grace, but there's times where He says, enough, stop. I mean, some of you who are parents know, and you, you give your kids the benefit of the doubt. They're tired. They're hungry. They haven't had a nap. They're 25, you know, whatever it might be. But, and then there comes a time where you say, that's it. Stop. Enough. No more. Well, God does that as well. And you see this, like right out of the gate in, in uh, Numbers chapter 14, the Lord said to Moses, which I think is funny. It's like God's going to Moses saying, hey, Moses, uh, can you talk me off the ledge here? Because I've had it with these people. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs that I have performed among them? How, how, long, how long am I going to have to put up with this? I mean, they just keep rebelling. They just keep wandering. And I keep bringing them back in, and just over and over again. And in that, in that time, they're preparing to go into the promised land. And God says, I want you to take 12 men, one from each tribe, not the Levitical tribe, but the two half-tribes of Joseph, 12 men, and I want you to send them in to explore the land. Send them in for 40 days. Let them spy out the land to see what I'm giving you. And when the 12 came back, some of you are very familiar with this story, 10 of them said, no, we can't do this. They're big in there. Yeah, it's an amazing land, but these people are huge. We look like grasshoppers compared to them. Two of them said, let's go. You know those, the names of those two? Joshua and Caleb. Do you know the names of the other ten? No, no, it's because they said no. Joshua and Caleb says, yeah, they're big, but they're such a big target we can't miss. Let's go. This is going to be fantastic. The land's amazing. And these ten who said, no, 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 we, we can't go in there, they didn't just give a, vo a no vote. They intentionally began to stir up dissension in the, in the ranks. They began to, to get this discontent amongst the people and get them riled up against Moses and Aaron and get them to rebel. And they're wanting to get a, like, get a rope. Let's lynch these guys. They want to kill them. They want to kill them. And, and God's, you know, just it's one of those times where he says, you know, enough of that. See, his original design was not that they would wander for 40 years. That was a consequence of this stirring up the, the, the nation to say, let's kill Aaron and Moses. Later in, in chapter 14, God says, for 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. There's a consequence. For all of you who said, we're not going in, we can't trust God, we don't believe him, you're never going to see the promised land. You're going to be out here wandering for 40 years. When all of you die off, then Israel will get the promised land. But you won't get to see it. You won't get to be a part of that. Now, what's amazing is that in this, the consequence to their sin, you still see the loving, gracious hand of God. God doesn't send them back into slavery. He could have. God continues to, to walk with them. He could have abandoned them. He continues to provide for them. He continues to protect them. He continues to give them manna. He gives them water out of a rock. He gives them quail. He keeps them uh, safe from the Canaanites. He continues to show his grace even in the midst of their rebellion. But he gives them this 40-year time out. He says, you know, for the next 40 years, until all of your unbelieving generation dies off, we're going to go in with a, with a new batch, with a fresh start. You're going to kind of be in a timeout here. Now, during that season, 
Again, there's this wandering away and bringing back and over and over again. But we find this story that we're looking at, the ultimate Snickers moment. Because the whole nation has become hangry. Right? And this is what we see in Numbers chapter 21. If you turn there, Numbers chapter 21, they've been wandering around. They're getting impatient. And this is what we find. The people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against not just Aaron and Moses this time. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, no show of hands, no nodding, no murmuring. Some of you are parents who have heard similar things to this around the dinner table. Are you kidding? This is what we have for dinner? Oh, I hate this. Oh, leftover. Maybe you ought to read this story at dinner time. Maybe not, but maybe. It might not be a, a bad idea. God had provided for them. He had sent them the quail. He had sent them the water. He had sent them the manna. But because of this murmuring, because of this hangry moment, he decides to send them something else. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. I mentioned last week I was in Costa Rica, and one of the guys with us was Rich Bosman, uh, who uh, a few years ago went with Tom Clark up the, the Amazon into the, the Peruvian jungle. And he talked about in, in the deep jungle uh, that the, the locals have a snake that they refer to as the 45-minute snake. It's a forest pit viper. That apparently if you're bit by a forest pit viper, you have about 45 minutes to get an anti-venom in you. Otherwise, you're dead. That's about all the time you have. So if you're out in the, out in the sticks, sayonara, you've you got 45 minutes. Enjoy it. Now, apparently there was no anti-venom for these people because they're getting bit and they're dying. Now, for some of you, you might be saying, see, that's, that's that Old Testament God that's so vengeful, he's so angry. It's like he got his ego bruised and people didn't like him and so he retaliates by killing them. I don't want anything to do with that God. Do you understand how patient and how gracious and how merciful God is? Even in the Old Testament, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in this context of what happens here, you have to ask yourself, is this an act of retribution or of restoration? Because those are two completely different things. Retribution has to do with punishing. Restoration has to do with correcting. You know, this retribution has to do with um, repaying. The other one has to do with, like, reforming, getting them back in line. The, the retribution says, you repay me. The restoration says, I, I will bring you back. I will bring you back. One of them looks backwards at what you have done. One of them looks forward at what you can be, what we can have. One of them is purely on justice. One of them is justice cloaked in love. And what you find with God is that every time, I mean, what does it say in Hebrews? You know, God dis disciplines those whom he loves. He did this because he had entered into a covenant. He would be their God. They would be his people. He loved them. He wanted them to stay on track so they could experience his blessings and to be his people. And so this happens. And people recognize that they were wrong. Verse 7 says, the people came to Moses and said, we sin. There, there's a genuine repentance I mean, they recognized we were out of line. We were wrong. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
And here again, you see how unbelievably gracious and loving and merciful our God is, even in the midst of their rebellion. Does God, is he somehow obligated to answer this prayer? That's a yes or no question. No, not at all. Do the Israelites deserve to have something come their way at this point that's good? No, they're getting what they deserve. And yet you see this mercy and this grace. So God says, I will give you the anti-venom. I will give you the remedy even in your rebellion. And this is what he says to Moses. Lord said, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Now, hold on to that little line. I'm going to come back to it in about seven or eight minutes, all right? Look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Let me ask you again. Do these people deserve to have this done for them? No. Okay, the answer is no. Let me ask you again. Do the people deserve to have this done for them? No, No, they don't. This is only because God is good. And look what he says. I need you to trust me. I need you to believe. I need you to be obedient in faith. If you get bit, you have to believe that looking at this is going to make a difference. And when you obey what I say, when you take that with faith and look at that, you're going to have redemption. It's not because you have earned it. It's not because you deserve it. You know what's amazing to me about this passage? Is that this is in Numbers 21, deep in the heart of the Old Testament passage that says, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, not uh, of anything you've done. It's a gift of God, and it's not by works, not from yourself. This is a picture of the grace of salvation that comes from faith, not from works. He says, just trust that I'm a good God and you will be saved. It's an amazing picture. And it's only because of God's goodness and God's grace that he does that. Now, Moses has this serpent that's kind of on on this pole. Maybe you've seen something similar, uh, like on an ambulance or an EMT uh, kit or uh, on on a, a first aid that looks something like this. This is a symbol of ambulance, healing, help, life. Now, I will say this, this symbol has its roots in Greek mythology. I'm not going to preach the word of God into this. It has its symbols and it has its roots in Greek mythology, but it's fascinating to me how it resembles so much the truth of what we find this story in Numbers 21, that there would be this emblem of a snake on a pole that would bring help, that would bring healing, that would bring life. And here God brings this to Moses and to the people. And the whole thing is what's referred to as a type or a foreshadowing. A, a type, and you see these throughout the Old Testament. Because you remember when Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. All the, all the Old Testament is leading to and will eventually land on and be fulfilled there in Jesus. A type is this. It's, it's, a, it's an incomplete and an imperfect preview of something that is coming. It's like when it says a foreshadowing, like there's something coming and the shadow hits you before it gets here. And all of this type, this foreshadowing, this prototype, this little example of what's coming, the type and the foreshadowing, it all points to Jesus. This story in Numbers 21 points to Jesus. Now I'm going to push pause on our story in Numbers 21 here. And I want to go forward, fast forward to Jesus because he referenced this story. 
he had an encounter with a man named Nicodemus. Some of you are familiar with Nicodemus' story. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. So he would have known, again, he would have known the Old Testament in and out, probably memorized the Pentateuch, the, the, the Psalms, all of that. He would have known all of it. He was not just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee. In John 3, you read that he was a part of the ruling uh, body, the the Sanhedrin, that he had a a higher authority, that he was in this kind of exclusive group of Pharisees. And Jesus makes a statement that could imply, not necessarily, could imply that he had an even higher authority as a mouthpiece, as a teacher of the Pharisees, because Jesus says to him, you know, you are the teacher of Israel. Now, he may have been talking broad brush strokes, talking about all of the Pharisees, he may have been talking specifically about Nicodemus. And Nicodemus came to visit Jesus, and he came at night. He's afraid of what people might say. Not all the Pharisees are real proud of of, uh, Jesus. In fact, they want to kill him. So he comes at night. Now, here's speculation. This is in Jerusalem. And he comes to Jesus at night. Could it have been? Could it have been in a garden that Jesus went to frequently when he was in Jerusalem? As we talked about a few weeks ago, just across the the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives was this Garden of Gethsemane. And we so put that only with the night before he was crucified. But could it have been a garden that he went to frequently whenever he came to Jerusalem? See, his really good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived just a stone's throw away within walking distance. And he probably stayed at their home whenever he came to Jerusalem. And maybe every night he would walk down to that garden and he would just spend time alone with the Lord. And maybe that was known. And maybe Nicodemus went to meet him in that garden. I don't know. It's speculation. But Nicodemus comes to him and says, Jesus, we understand. We know. You're from God. And Jesus engages with him this conversation about spiritual rebirth. He says, you must be born again. That's where that phrase comes from in John 3. You must be born again. In my loose translation, Nicodemus says, my mom will never go for that. And so Jesus explains some other things. In the midst of this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus points back to Numbers 21. John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, immediately, Nicodemus knows exactly what he's talking about here. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the book of Numbers. He knows this story. He knows the context of it all. That there was a holy, righteous, just God in heaven. And there were these sinful, rebellious, sin-bitten people on earth. And there was this gap between this holy, righteous, just God and these sinful, condemned people. There was a separation. There was a distance physically. There was a distance spiritually. And that Moses brings this this snake on a pole and it's suspended between heaven and earth, suspended between the holy and the sinful, suspended between the life giver and those who uh, who have been condemned to death. And this symbol, this snake, bridges the gap between a holy, righteous God and a sinful, death bound uh, person on earth. You can see where this is going. He says, You know about that story. And then he turns it around. And he points to himself. He said, in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up. That it's not just Israel in the desert in Numbers 21. That we have a holy, righteous, life-giving God in heaven. 
And every single one of us here, sinful rebellion, have been snake bitten and the venom is coursing through our veins and will cause spiritual and physical death. And there's a gap, there's a physical gap, there's a spiritual gap, there's a relational gap, and nothing we can do can bridge that gap. And so the Son of Man must be suspended between the heaven and the God of life and earth and all these humans who are dying. And the Son of Man ah, on the cross will be the bridge that will allow life to come in the anti-venom for those who've been bitten by sin. Man, I wish we were a black Baptist church. <laughs> I had three amens on that. That's good news. And Jesus said, I'm the fulfillment of that. Now, later in, in uh, chapter 12, he says, but when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die, that he would be lifted up on the cross, not touching earth anymore, suspended between a heavenly God and an earthly people, the one who is holy, just, righteous, and filled with life and forgiveness, and those who are sin-sick, uh, sentenced to death, rebellious, and on their way to hell, to be the anti-venom, to breathe life, to let his blood nourish and course through our veins for eternal life. And so he says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Remember in the uh, Numbers 21 passage, Moses said, if you will look to him, look to this snake, you will live. I grew up in church singing hymns, and there was this old hymn that we sang, look and live, my brother live. Any of you remember that, that hymn at all? Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now, live, as recorded in his word. Hallelujah. That we only look to him and live. He says, this is how. It's because of God's grace. It's not anything you've done. It's when you look to him, when you trust in him, when you, by faith, accept what he has done, hanging in the balance between you and God, that you can have life and you can be redeemed. You can be restored. And then as he's telling all this to Nicodemus, he comes to that most famous passage, maybe in all of Scripture, when he says, Oh, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on the face of this planet. Every other religion says, yes, there's a separation between you and whatever, you and whatever deity, you and whatever God, you and whatever eternal life or whatever heaven or whatever nirvana, whatever it is you're trying to do. There is a separation and you have to work to somehow bring about your own uh, remuneration to pay back, to earn your way back, to, to do all that. God says, no, 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 there's not a thing you can do. You've been bitten by sin. There's no way you can bridge that gap. I will bridge it for you. That's why I send my son, Jesus Christ. And he's the one that will be suspended between heaven and earth. And he's the one that will provide a way for you to have eternal life. Now, put your pause on that one. Back to this story with the snake in the Old Testament. When, when Moses made that bronze snake, it was an instrument for salvation. It, it brought them life. But over time, it became an instrument of idolatry. That something happened. When it had served its purpose, it was a good thing, but, but they, they kept it around. 
And it became this, this instrument of idolatry. I, I like how Timothy Keller uh, defines idolatry. He says that when good things become ultimate things, it becomes idolatry. And think about that in your life. Food is a good thing, but when it becomes the ultimate thing in your life, it becomes idolatry. Sex is a good thing that God has given to husbands and wives in the context of marriage. When it becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes idolatry. Your job, money, power, position, those are good things, but when they become ultimate things, they become idolatry. And even in the church, there are good things that God has given to us, but when they become ultimate, when they become more important, they become idolatry. You know, some of us, it was this kind of a camp or this kind of a program or this kind of a church or this kind of a preacher or this style or, or this ministry or this strategy, and it, and it changed our lives. And sometimes we hold on to that so much. And maybe it was good at the time, and maybe it served its usefulness, but we've made it so important. I love what Jaroslav Pelikan said. He said, tradition is the living faith of those now dead. That's a good thing. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those still living. Those who are still holding on to the old wineskins. Those who are still holding on to the past saying, we won't let this go. What about the fresh wind of God? The, the, the eternal God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's doing a new thing. That he's breathing life in. Don't hold on to those tradition things that, that hold us back. Learn from them and let that be the living faith of those who have already died to keep us going. So with this, this pole, they had held on to it. Now you fast forward 700 years, and there's a king in Judah. There's a king named Hezekiah, and he's different than all the other kings. This is what it says about Hezekiah. He's 25 years old, by the way. Young man brings incredible reform to Israel. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Very few of Israel's kings could that be said about. Hezekiah was one of them. He says, we, we, are, we have wandered so far off, we've got to do something about this. He removed the high places, he smashed the sacred stones, and he cut down the Asherah poles. Oh, and one other thing he did. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called... Nehushtan, that they took this, this tool for salvation that served its purpose in its time and turned it into an instrument of idolatry. And for 700 years, they'd been burning incense to it. And he says, no, 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 no. It was good for what it was. But it's a Nehushtan. Nehushtan means it's a brazen thing. It's a, it's a piece of bronze. And I just want a little side note. Are there Nehushtans in our life? that we hold on to, that, that become idols, that, that take the place of Jesus. There's something that's more important to us than Jesus, something that takes that place. It needs to be broken like, like uh, Hezekiah did to keep Jesus at the forefront. So let's circle back around to Jesus one more time. Because Jesus said, but when I am lifted up, and he uses that phrase again and again, from the earth will draw all men to myself. That there are different ways we can look at this thing of Jesus being lifted up. We've seen the obvious. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, lifted up. He was lifted up from the earth. He was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up for our salvation, which was the sacrifice of his life. He was lifted up onto that cross. And as we know, as we just celebrated not more than a month ago or so, that he was lifted up out of the grave to become the victor and the conqueror of sin and death and, and, and the grave. 
And in verse, uh, verse 9, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, lifted him up even higher, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, he's lifted up for our worship. He's exalted. You see how he was lifted up on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Now he's lifted up, exalted as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God, the ruler of all the universe for our worship. I've been reading an old book by Andrew Murray, and there was a great quote in this book. It said this, his humility, being obedient, he became obedient to death on the cross. His humility is our salvation, and his salvation is our humility. The fact that he would humble himself and be lifted up and suspended between that God that gives life and those of us who've been bitten by the snake of sin. His humility puts him on the cross and brings to us salvation. And he gives that to us, not because of anything we've done, but his salvation for us now brings about humility because we don't deserve it. We could never earn it. It's only because of his grace. And our response should be nothing less than humble gratitude and worship to the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus, on the night before he was lifted up, to hang in the balance between God and man, to take care and to become the anti-venom, to allow his blood to course through our veins. He was in a room with his disciples just before he went to that garden. And he says, guys, I want you to remember this. And I want to give you a tangible way to remember this. And he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, do this in remembrance of me. And he instituted this thing that for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been doing to remind ourselves of his life-giving blood and his sacrifice and his communion. And so today, we're going to end our time in taking communion. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward in service. And this is what I would say. If you're a follower after Jesus, you're more than welcome to participate. We'd love to have you participate. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man... I don't know why you wouldn't be, but maybe you're just not there yet. Would you just pass this by? We won't make a big deal of it. You don't make a big deal of it. But as the ushers pass these elements, you take them. And the, the team is going to play and then going to lead us in a couple of songs. And over the next five, ten minutes, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take those elements. You don't have to wait for everybody to be served. But as you're holding on to these, remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember that this is our story, that we've all been bitten by sin, but Jesus becomes our anti-venom and gives us life. And take that communion, remembering his sacrifice, and then sing with us as we close.